0: Okay, I think we'll, uh, we will begin. Uh, first of all, welcome to this um, event, which is uh, co-sponsored by the Centre for the Study of Human Rights here at the LSE and also by uh, LSE Ideas, which is a centre for the study of diplomacy and strategy. I'll introduce myself as the kind of chair who is not the chair tonight, so to speak. My name is Professor Mick Cox. I'm co-director. Uh, of uh, of ideas and also in the Department of International uh, Relations. When I arrived at the LSE uh, six, seven years ago and two, three months before the decision to go to war against Saddam Hussein um, there was an enormous debate which went on here at the LSE as indeed around the world about the reasons for the legality of and the implications of going to war against Iraq. All I can say then it was quite an entry into the life of NSC. Um, And that dominated debate, uh, in many ways, I would say here, for at least five years. In many ways, we're still living in the shadow of that decision, and the earlier decision, of course, to go to war against Afghanistan in 2001. Now, a few of the spin-offs of what became known but is no longer referred to, by some people at least, as the War on Terror, uh, was Abu Ghraib, Guantanamo, extraordinary rendition. Of course, to those who defended these policies, they were seen as necessary because the enemy was new and that there was no alternative in any way. The intelligence you got out of all this was necessary and useful. It was argued and has continued to be argued by some. Uh, the the alternative argument, which I think you're going to be hearing tonight, one with which I fully solidarize, of course, that not only was it controversial, but maybe counterproductive and fundamentally undermined uh, liberal Western norms. Uh, without question, from an international relations point of view, Abu Ghraib, Guantanamo, and extraordinary rendition rebounded, without question, on America's standing uh, within the world. And you might in part say that one of the reasons, though well, not the only one, that uh, the Bush administration in the end uh, went to ground, so to speak, and indeed we've now got a new president to shape of Barack Obama, was precisely on these kinds of international issues and the implications of that for America's moral standing in the world. With that in mind, I'm therefore very, very pleased to introduce to you tonight uh, two experts and two uh, wonderful speakers and writers on the whole question of torture and the whole question of accountability. Indeed, as you can see from behind you, the title of the evening's events is Torture and Accountability. Where does Obama go from here? The two speakers this evening who I'm introducing, but they will then have their own conversation, and I will then leave the stage, are Karen Friedberg. Uh, Oh, sorry, Greenberg. They, They misspelled it here. Thank you. Sorry about that. Karen Greenberg is Executive Director of the Center on Law and Security at New York University School of Law, The editor of the torture debate in America and co-editor of the forthcoming enemy combatant papers and of course being the LSE in a highly entrepreneurial place. This is her new book which will be on sale at the back there and I think uh, Karen will be uh, there to sign it. The other speaker this this evening who will engage in that conversation is Professor Philippe Sands who is Professor of Law and Director of the Centre on International Courts and Tribunals at University College London. Uh, here in the UK, of course, and a key member of the staff in the Centre for Law and the Environment. And again, being very entrepreneurial, because I like to not only introduce wonderful speakers, but also like to get them to make lots of money. Uh, He has also written a very interesting book, The Torture Team, Uncovering War Crimes in the Land of the Free. Now, the format for this evening will be that I'm going to leave the stage, which is very nice for me, and then uh, Philippe and Karen will then engage in a conversation and a debate for approximately 40 minutes or something like that, and then we will open it up for questions and and answers. So with no further ado, I'd like you all to give an LSE welcome to Karen Greenberg, whose name I think I now got right, and Professor Philippe Sands. Welcome to the LSE.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Professor Cox. We're going to follow a slightly unusual format. Uh, this evening. We're going to have a conversation with each other. I'm going to throw a few questions at Karen. She's then going to throw a few questions at me and then we're going to put it out uh, into the audience for you to ask either or both of us whatever you want to um, talk about. I I do want to take a moment just to explain Karen's pretty seminal role in this story. At a time when things were, let's say unfashionable in the United States to take a strong stance in relation to the issue of interrogations and what came to be known as enhanced interrogation techniques and what we now know today as torture, Karen Greenberg played a singularly crucial role, not least uh, through her work at the Center on Law and Security at NYU. Uh, in the course of which she published and it was a brave thing to do I can tell you in the States uh, whilst the so-called war on terror uh, was underway uh, a book called The Torture Papers which brought together for the first time all of the memoranda that were in the public domain with editorial content and in a sense you can trace the change which came shortly after the publication of the pictures of Abu Ghraib with the publication by Cambridge University Press of this 1,000-page volume. Now, I want to start with that. Did you expect the torture papers to have the resonance it has had both in the United States and abroad?
2: Well, first, thank you for having us, and um, thank you for that those kind words, Philippe. Um, okay, what I expected was clear in my mind. It wasn't so much about the torture papers as a book. Honestly, what I expected was that as soon as it was clear what was happening, which was basically that the United States government had laid out in a series of legal and, and intergovernmental memos, um, uh, what they considered uh, the legitimization of uh, state-approved torture, Um, uh, that once that was obvious and clear, which it was, this was not like some kind of textual interpretation, that it would just stop. (laughs) Honestly, that's what I thought. I thought, you name it, you see it, we've seen the photos from Abu Ghraib, and and that will be the end of it. It it never occurred to me that that to this day we would still be talking about it every day and sort of reading more government documents every day. Um, it's five and a half years later from from the first documents that were released. Um, and so that's what I expect and I still expect but I'm waiting for this to go away, but I just thought it was it was illegal and immoral and um, contrary to anything we would want to think of ourselves as a nation of doing and so it would just stop. And
1: what sort of <laughs> pressures? did you come under both in terms of the compilation of those texts and subsequent to the publication
2: oh. of the book? Well, some I may have forgotten for this moment anyway. <laughs> but So some of the pressures. Um, the, the big pressure had to do with the title because, see, nobody we weren't supposed to be using the word torture like the prisoners at... Um, Guantanamo weren't going to be called prisoners so but this was worse that so we were supposed to call it um, you know enhanced interrogation techniques that actually came a little later but whatever I was supposed to call it we weren't supposed to call it torture and so when the book went to print, there were a number of uh, colleagues um, and individuals of mine who you know took me out for drinks or lunch and told me that you know, I wasn't going to publish this book. Um, or if I did, that they didn't want to be associated with me. And so that made me, I was a little shocked. Um, but since then, t- to this day, the most trouble I've had over that book is the use of the word torture instead of I'm not sure what. Um, and that's interesting because now it's pretty much accepted, um, maybe not on the news channels, but on, in print, um, nobody's really debating. In fact, quite the opposite. You know, the uh, Bush administration will defend um, what they did. You know, Cheney's out there defending it. So, um, But still to this day, um, I've gotten some pushback, let's say, from people at the Pentagon, one of whom once said to me, this made me laugh, come on. Tell me that it was your co-author, Joshua Draytel, that picked the title, not you. It's, it's like the calling card. If you want to talk to us, you have to please just tell us this one thing that you didn't want to use that word.
1: And, and what is it about the word? Is it, is it, is it its connection <laughs> with the accountability issue that once you recognize, and indeed we've now had, uh, you know, the convening authority of Guantanamo confirm, for example, the person that I wrote about, Mohammed al Qatani, was indeed tortured. And that is why the charges against him were dropped. That happened six days before President Obama took office. But but is the problem with the torture word that still isn't used, for example, in the New York Times, is the problem with it the association with accountability, the obligation to investigate, or is it something else?
2: I don't think it's the accountability issue because I, I think that they're separable, at least in the American mindset. Um, you know, that we did it. it. may not have anything to do with that anybody has to be held accountable. I think initially, um, and this is different than, say, the, the decisions of the convening authority or the statements of the convening authority, I think initially the idea was that this is something that comes from another century, another kind of country, another kind of civic society, and What the Bush administration said at the time, we, the United States does not torture. And it was, it's a, it's a, like cognitive dissonance. Which is what I thought too. That's why I thought it would go away. But it was cognitive dissonance in such a way that it was, it became its own form of denial. And so you couldn't put it on the table. And yes, maybe it would lead to accountability. But what, what it really was, was to a, an an undermining of how the country wants to define itself, you know a country that is at the forefront of human rights and and justice issues cannot use the word torture and so there was an immediate, instinctive almost intuitive knowledge of that even at the same time that there was a kind of guilt about breaking through that barrier
1: So. So the dam bursts open in April 2004 when CBS runs images of Abu Ghraib for the first time, and the documents start emerging, and over the next four years, for the entire second term of President Bush, more and more documents are coming out, the case is being built, the evidence becomes pretty overwhelming, that torture was used systematically and widely, and then a new president comes in. What what has he done so far? to address these issues.
2: (laughs) Symbolically (laughs) symbolically, he began his presidency with issuing three executive orders that directly addressed torture, detention, interrogation, and Guantanamo. Um, And and those orders basically said, as you know, that Guantanamo would close uh, in a year, which would be on January twenty second of two thousand and nine that, um, torture was not something the United States government was going to, uh, um, uh, be a part of any more going forward and that the entire issue of interrogation and detention would be looked at by um, a task force that was made up both of Pentagon officials and Department of Justice officials as well as some intelligence agents. But the important part was sort of re-empowering the Department of Justice in these matters which had been single-handedly given over to um, the Pentagon by President Bush. Um, so he's done that. Um and he's reached out significantly, I think, to, to the human rights community in the United States and maybe internationally, although I, I, you'd have a better sense of that, um, to try to make the point that he wants to have a conversation about it. So, so while he's done it some symbolic things, um, let me say also that his Justice Department has done some symbolic things. Um, Attorney General uh, Eric Holder has, after what I hear was, and I'm sure Philippe hears, was a rather contentious fight within the Department of Justice, has let out a, seri- let out a series of memos last, late last spring that um, told us things about the creation of the torture policy and the implementation of torture methods that, that none of us, even the most dire of us, really had any notion of. We may have heard it rumored, but when you see in print lawyers talking about you know how wide your fingers can be so it won't be torture, or how Abu Zubaydah, it was okay to put him in a black box because he was flexible even though he was wounded, or when you read about how many seconds you can hold a wet cloth over somebody's head when you you waterboard them, but but this many seconds is too much. (laughs) When you start seeing lawyers write about that stuff, you realize that, you know, it it was happening even beyond ways that you were thinking of it. And and it was Obama's Justice Department that let out those materials. And so, you know, they've done a number of things. Uh, So that's in the direction of trying to think through this and educate the American public and fess up to what happened and the severity of it and the systematic nature of it. This was, (laughs) nobody's talking anymore about, um, you know, lone players, um, rogue elements, rotten apples. Um, on the other hand, there is increasing frustration, I think, among a number of people in the United States, among our constituencies, um, who worry whether or not Guantanamo is going to close. Um, although I'm still hoping it will um, within the time frame of a year. Um, there is, uh, there has been raised the uh, notion by the Obama administration of preventive detention, which is legalizing basically what Guantanamo has been about, preventive detention for people who can neither be tried by military commission nor by regular federal uh, Article III courts in the United States, Um, and probably a host of other things that are potentially quite disappointing should they become policy. So I would say is the Obama administration to date looks conflicted, um, but but the conflictual nature of it doesn't seem to be going necessarily in a direction where will be perfect at
1: the end as you well know and as many people in the room well know the 1984 convention against torture which the United States really led the world in helping negotiate and draft commits all states parties including the United States to investigate allegations of torture wherever they occur and however high up the chain of command they Occur, And we've got in the United Kingdom at least two criminal investigations now underway, and we can come back to those in due course. What's happening in the United States on giving effect to the obligations to investigate? What happened?
2: Uh Um, That was the part I left out of my story. So now... (laughs) um, well, let me just give you a sense of the narrative structure, and then I'll talk about the details when Obama came into office and he issued these executive orders and these documents came out alongside the Senate Armed Services Committee report, which is is an intense examination of how the policy was written and drafted, plus documents from another um, a number of other uh, Senate committees. Um, we have more information now than we've ever had so At the same time that that's been going on, this education of the American public, if they want to be educated, um, the call for accountability, and we can go into what that would mean, has gotten weaker and weaker and weaker to the point now where I would say if I wanted to have a dinner party (laughs) with people who thought accountability was a good idea, it would be one of the smaller dinner parties I'd ever given. Um, And it's very interesting to see how people are just falling away from the issue. Um, and and the reasons range anywhere from from the Obama administration's desire to play this politically and to adhere, uh, respond to political pressures, to, um, I believe a, a deep commitment on the part of the Department of Justice not to investigate itself, not so much the individuals uh, who we might want to hold accountable, but but it it would affect the ability, I think, of the Department of Justice to have this happen to it again. In other words, what kind of oversight mechanisms need to be put in place so that the Office of Legal Counsel cannot do this in secret? What kind of mechanisms need to be put in place so that there's some supervision for the White House Counsel? What kind of um, supervision needs to be put in place for the Attorney General? And so to ask... An institution to investigate itself as an institution, which is what's going to happen, um, I believe, is one of the great and un um, and, and unexamined um, uh, barriers to this going forward. Um, which is why I think the OPR report, which has been sitting on, uh, uh, You, you need
1: to explain to this audience what you that
2: explain is. them. You explain. Okay, the, open, the okay. Not a good explainer. the um, The Office of Professional Responsibility report is uh, a report on the um, on the what happened in the Department of Justice in terms of creating this policy and who bears responsibility and whether they. I mean, we assume we haven't read it. At least I haven't read it. Have you read it? Okay. Um, That that we assume it's about who uh, reasoned in good faith or not in good faith about. Or this is what we'd like to read into it about uh, giving advice um, to the president and to the executive in general about um, what what was legal and what wasn't legal and what could actually be legally tampered with. Would that be anything you want to add? Feel free. And so that that report... Um, went to the former Attorney General, who then sent it out for vetting to the people it was about, <laughs> namely the people who wrote the torture memos, who then commented on it and sent it back. And the this version of, of the what we call the OPR report is sitting on the Attorney General's desk and is not going anywhere. And for those of us who wait for these documents... Um, you know, this is a huge uh, issue of contention, and we'd like to see it. But, but again, I, the reasons may not be, you know, in th- that they tell us more about torture and what went on inter- on that end of it, the implementation end. This is going to be about the Department of Justice itself. And so, you know, I think that is the question. How does an institution examine itself, and what precedents do we have for that? And this not mean, how it works. H-
1: history tells us that it, it, it's very difficult for any country after events such as these, to put in place speedily mechanisms to investigate. And I think Britain, in in a curious way, deserves some credit. We've got two sets of files that are before Scotland Yard right now, again, we we can come back to those. But but, but in the US, it's not quite the case that nothing has happened. The Attorney General has appointed a special prosecutor, and can you tell us a little bit more about the mandate that's been given to the special prosecutor... (laughs) and what you think that may possibly lead to. And why did Holder do that?
2: Well, because I think, I mean, I don't know uh, Attorney General Holder, but I think he's very very much given indication that he does not rest content with the torture issue going away. Just how far that takes it to accountability issues, I don't know. Special prosecutor was originally uh, appointed or um, positioned to look into the disappearance of the CIA tapes on interrogation, those I believe it was 92 tapes that disappeared. It'd be great if we could have them. We could see who did the interrogation, what kind of questions that we asked. We'd have a sense of who empowered them to ask these. We'd know a lot. Um, but they disappeared. They were destroyed. And so he's being looking into the destru- destruction of those. Eric Holder appointed him then to look at um, the discrepancy between what the CIA interrogators who were in the room did to the detainees that they were interrogating, the discrepancy between what they actually did and what was um, codified or, or approved by the um, Office of Legal Counsel and the Department of Justice. In other words, believe it or not, these memos lay out what you're allowed to do that is, in the estimation of the Bush administration lawyers, not torture. Which, by the way, includes, you know, very detailed um, waterboarding and things like that. But apparently um, what some of the memos that have really showed is that a number of the things that were done violated the rather excessive um, parameters that were allowable under these original memos. And so the prosecutor is supposed to be looking into that as well. But it's still a, a narrow part of it. He's not looking into whether it was okay to say this was not torture, it was, that it was okay to, to do these things. On the other hand, it could very easily open up that issue, if, if this prosecutor wanted to, you know, if you think about it. And sure, Holder knows that. I mean, he could say, hmm, what would be one step further than this, you know, and he could incrementally get to... Uh, what what if Eric
1: Holder knows that the defense of those who are being investigated criminally now is actually, we didn't, we weren't off on a frolic. I mean, this is in a sense the British narrative. We got authorization from the highest levels. We were given supportive legal words that this was okay to go further. The memo I wrote about from Mr. Rumsfeld, why standing limited four hours when I stand for eight to ten hours a day, is a sort of a signal, could be taken as a signal to go further. Could, could it be that in fact what's happening, uh, who knows, uh, is that this is a smart way of opening the door to something that will then take on a life of its own.
2: Could be. It could uh. be. And, and it, uh, what I've always thought is to release those memos that Holder released, <laughs> it's very hard to control what would happen after that because the amount of information on that in them is somewhat staggering in terms of, you know, if, if anybody bothered to read them and they're not that long, um, so I, I, think, I think the piece of it that's missing, yes, he could let, you know, set the process in motion, you know, the train has left the station kind of thing. But what if nobody cares? Well,
1: yeah. well, I mean, one, one final question before we hand over to you to take it in whatever direction you want to take it. What about non-criminal investigations? What about what some have suggested, Senator Leahy on the Judiciary Committee, some form of... Truth and Reconciliation Commission which would enable the truth to come out but would leave to one side the question of criminal responsibility why has that not gained real political traction
2: I think because it hasn't, what happened by giving a lot of options this is an administration that gives a lot of options well we have this this kind of detention and we have you know obama's memo on detention and interrogation basically included everybody's opinions in one we'll do we'll have these five categories i think it's the same kind of thing well maybe we'll prosecute maybe we'll write a truth and reconciliation maybe we'll just have a congressional inquiry maybe we'll do a 9/11 type of commission that somehow the amount of options without any direct directed behavior in 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 any particular one, has sort of in a way quieted, if not silenced, the argument. What I do think, however, is that no matter what happens, um, some panel needs to be empowered to write the authoritative study, uh, just narrative, of what happened and how it happened. And, and, I, and I think you have to be really careful about how aggressive it is a, against certain individuals but more as a, a systematic failure of a government to control itself at a time when it really mattered. Because the only re- yeah, it's really nice to punish people that have done bad things, and it might feel really good at some level, but I think ultimately the um, the goal is to have this happen not happen again, and it might not be in torture next time it might be on something like predator drones it might be on something related to something military it, who knows what it's going to be but there but it might not be torture and therefore addressing the minor little not little but the, the what they can you know put in a box as torture is is not going to solve the issue of how a government secretly <laughs> We, we know the precedents for this, secretly and systematically created something that was completely at odds with with its def- self-definition as a, as a country. And so that's really what you want to be going after, which is why I say the narrative of what happened and how it happened, and not just one person told another person, but the institutional manner in which it happened is, is I think, would be a very good idea. And, you know, I'm happy to... I would be happy to settle for that because I don't think it would be settling, I think. Now, is it my turn?
1: It's your turn. Okay.
2: So that's good. I I, I think I prefer asking the questions to answering them. So I I want to start with um, the thing that that kind of bothers that I don't understand the most. And then we'll get... I'd like to talk then about um, the UK and the difference between the the United States and, and Britain on these issues. But my my real question is where do you think public support anywhere lies I'll take Mars I'm. Uh, lies for how important it is is it to these kinds of, of um, investigations from the past as well as you know current ones and where do you think um, public opinion lies over this issue
1: well I mean there's a sort of package of questions the, the, the first issue is you know really goes to the heart of what what happens and when. And I think I'm very acutely informed by the experience of the Pinochet case, which leads very much in the direction that these things don't go away. Mm-hmm. They take on a life of their own, they fester, they have tentacles that go off in different directions, and eventually something happens which is unexpected and which really causes a major opening up of the whole issue. Now, to have that happen, you have got to have a constituency of people who are constantly pushing. I've always thought that in the United States, that constituency doesn't exist in part, because unlike Pinochet, the torture was being perpetrated on others it was not being perpetrated on us so to speak they were all foreign they were all Muslim there were uh, you know, acts that were taking place which meant that there's no constituency in the United States which has really gone to bad on this issue on, on a large scale now what, what's curious is that in Britain the reaction's been slightly different. I mean, for much of the last seven years, I've spent half the year in the States, half the, year, half the year in New York, half the year in London, or Washington or New York, whatever. And it's very interesting the way the British media has treated this very differently from the US media. The media, I think, has an absolutely crucial role to play in all of this. The American media was not interested in these issues at all until Abu Ghraib, and then it was a very narrowly focused set of issues. In Britain from January 2002, when the images first emerged at Guantanamo and elsewhere there was some significant interest in important parts of the media you know we had the guardian we had the independent we had the bbc that was reporting widely on these issues and so it entered public consciousness in a way that it did not in the united states in the united states you had you know, the nation magazine the new york review of books Uh, one or two other journals but the mainstream media did not touch this issue and I think that has meant that these issues have rather more traction in the United Kingdom so that when issues of detainee abuse come up and they're not taking place of course on UK territory they are less it appears now that there is very direct UK involvement but it's at a distance it's through others and yet despite all of that For a relatively large proportion of the population, there is considerable interest in this. I mean, I think there are many people in Britain who would take the same position as in the United States. If this is what we need to do, then let's do it. But the experience in Britain, I think, with the IRA, the experience with colonialism, taught certain lessons that you go down this route, it opens doors, and they don't go away. And I think that is why... And I hear what, what you say in terms of the limitations of what the Obama administration is doing. The reality is these issues fester, they haunt, and at some point I think something will, will happen.
2: I want to I talk a little bit about Guantanamo because both of us wrote books on Guantanamo, but here we're talking about torture. <laughs> okay, anyway. um, and I, I guess my question is what do you actually think the relationship of Guantanamo is, um, both metaphorically and really to the issue of torture, or is it something that's more, uh, du- directly related to ghost prisons and renditions to Abu Ghraib and perhaps, you know, other places? But w- where is Guantanamo a separate story? Is it integral to the story? And if it's integral, as I think your book shows, how, how, how do you, uh, tell that story?
1: Well, it's integral for me, as you mentioned, because the person that I wrote about, my my book, Karen's book is about the first hundred days of Guantanamo before the real abuse started. It's how the place was decided upon, how they selected it, how they chose the personnel, which is an incredible story. And it's a series of interviews, which makes it really very gripping. But I focused in on one individual only, uh, a detainee 063, Mohammed Al Qatani, said to be the 20th hijacker who was discovered at Guantanamo in June 2002, to have been the same person who sought to gain access allegedly to uh, the United States at Orlando International Airport and was in fact thrown out and captured in Afghanistan and eventually transported back to Guantanamo. And he was then the person who catalyzed the new interrogation techniques for use not by the CIA but by the Department of Defense. And it was the 18 techniques, 15 of which were approved by Donald Rumsfeld, for blanket use on Muhammad al and three other techniques left open for use on a case-by-case basis, including waterboarding, That caused Mohammed al-Qahtani over a period of 54 days, and I have no equivocation and doubt about it, to have been tortured. Now, I don't believe there was systematic torture at Guantanamo, and I'm sceptical about the claim that everyone was tortured. Indeed, I've spoken to many detainees who say, look, the abuse they really suffered was not at Guantanamo. It was at Bagram or in Pakistan or in Morocco or before they got to Guantanamo. But Al-Qahtani was tortured at Guantanamo, and the convening authority of the military commissions has confirmed as much. Why that is significant is that it was the techniques that were approved at Guantanamo that then migrated a year later to Iraq. And we then have learned that, contrary to the positions taken by the Bush administration, the Geneva Convention did not apply to everyone in Iraq, or at least if it applied. The same interpretation was given in Iraq, in Baghdad, in Abu Ghraib, as occurred in relation to Guantanamo. Namely, there is a category of persons, alleged terrorists, who have no protections whatsoever under the Geneva Conventions, so we can do this stuff to them. And in that way, it migrated. And of course, that is the way, and this is subject to an inquiry Right now, not a criminal investigation, but the uh Ahamusa inquiry, that then migrated from Baghdad down to Basra. And that is essentially the same techniques of interrogation. So you can see with this one document where Rumsfeld authorized the techniques of interrogation, you can then trace its tentacles literally halfway around the world. So for me, Guantanamo is a seminal Place because it is in effect where, on the military side, it started in secret.
2: Um, well, so here's a question that's more related, it's somewhat related to Obama in the future, but it's more related to the world in the future, which is that there are a number of uh, individuals who are suggesting now that the Geneva Conventions be rewritten, that actually maybe they didn't apply, you know. Um, and there are a number of human rights lawyers that have articulated this over the past nine months. Do you think this is going to happen? No,
1: I, I think it absolutely won't happen. It, 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 um, it, 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 it completely won't happen. I mean, the effort to do away with international conventions, to do away with Geneva, to carve out exceptions, to create legal black holes, has utterly and totally failed. And I think that's the one real positive to come out of all of this, is that despite the efforts of the most powerful country in the world to get rid of Geneva, to get rid of the torture convention, they have not gone away. They have withstood uh, that, you know, that assault. That is not to say, and we've now got you know the Israeli Foreign Ministry declaring that they're going to renew their effort to revise the Geneva Conventions. But that effort is going to fail. It's not going to go anywhere. There's no real uh, support for it. It will be a, for domestic political consumption as it is in the United States. There's no traction for that here in the United Kingdom uh, at all. So I think, in short, it is uh, an abject failure. And it's an abject failure because the values that are reflected in those provisions of Geneva, Common Article 3, and in the Torture Convention, are, are such core values for so many people uh, around the world and for so many people in this country that I think that effort will fail miserably.
2: Okay. Let's turn to what's happening in each of our respective countries and how they either match up or don't match up. <clears throat> and let's start with um, the fact that I see them as on two different roads right now, um, despite the rhetoric, perhaps, of the Obama administration. Um because on the one hand, you have these two criminal investigations going on here, at least two. There could be more, and if there are, please enlighten us. Um, but you've seen your court system call for the release of documents that would be relevant not just to our to United States torturing, but I'm assuming to, to U.K. involvement in torture. Um, and so the way it appears to me is that there is a push for... Um, um, more and more information that's getting responded to by the institutions of your government or your th- social world. Um, but in the United States, the decisions are getting more and more um, um, withholding. Um, the Arar case yesterday, you know, was basically thrown out um, on appeal in the appeals court, and um, and there is, there's been a number of times where state secrets have been claimed over in a variety of cases, the one having to do with Binya Muhammad. So I'm wondering how you can bring this all together, um, and then maybe we can talk a little bit about Muhammad. I mean
1: that's, That is a, a really, of all the questions, it's the most fascinating for me, is the interplay between the United States and the United Kingdom and the interplay of reactions that are now taking place. I just want to say at the outset, since I've had a certain involvement in the Binyan Mohammed case, I have to be very careful what I say, and I'm just going to talk about what's in the public domain, and I'm going to treat this as an academic exercise in that there is a provision of the Bar Council rules. I'm a barrister, which basically says you can talk about things in an academic context, so I just want to make that... Absolutely correct. I'll
2: I'll keep you honest here.
1: It's a a complex story. Let's deal firstly with the question of criminal investigations. Actually, I think there are some real similarities about what is going on. Um, The Binyam Mohammed proceedings threw up information, in particular through the cross-examination by a British barrister, Dinah Rose, of information concerning the circumstances in which MI5 had gone off to Pakistan to contribute to the questioning of a detainee, a British resident, held in Pakistan. And that material evidently raised concerns for the judges, who then referred the matter to the Home Secretary, who then referred the matter to the Attorney General who then reflected on the matter and eventually, and I think pretty bravely, speaking personally, referred the matter to Scotland Yard, where it now sits. Now, that came much earlier than what happened in the United States. And, of course, it is a more distant involvement, since the allegation, in effect, is not actual engagement in torture, but complicity in wait let's,
2: let's I think maybe you should talk about the binnya Muhammad case. What is it? I mean I'm a, maybe everybody doesn 't know just you know what well, happened what is he acu- what has what he been accusing people of and, well was.
1: he's been in short he, his, uh, his allegation is that whilst mm-hmm. he was in custody in Pakistan and in Morocco and then elsewhere he was subject to torture, and that in some way uh, it 's in the public domain the the, the British authorities were complicit by contributing to questioning and information and so on and so forth. So it raises not a question of, there isn't really an allegation that any British officials were involved in the perpetration of torture themselves but that they knowingly and willingly participate. That led to the circumstances that I've just uh, described in which the matter is now before Scotland Yard but actually let's look at what's happening. What's actually happening is that the person who is being investigated criminally, and I don't know if there's anyone in this room who's ever been subject to a criminal investigation, but it is an intensely oppressive thing to be subject to, deeply oppressive thing to be subject to, and a deeply scary thing to be subject to. The person who's been criminally investigated is a senior intelligence officer at MI5, known only as Witness B. Witness B testified in court, it's in the public domain, that he was not off on a frolic he acted pursuant to uh, decisions taken by his superiors, by senior management at MI5 by uh, legal advisors at MI5 and then he said in the cross-examination by quote the government end of quote. Now that raises of course some <coughs> very serious questions. What is meant assuming it to be accurate, by the words, the government, uh, who in the government, under the 1994 Act, actually signed off on this stuff. The 1994 Act exists in order to precisely protect British intelligence officers from exposure to investigations of this kind or allegations of responsibility where their political masters have taken the decision. So there is at least enough there to indicate that the entities that ought to be being considered for investigation are persons associated with the government. Now, we don't know whether it's true, we don't know how high up it goes, but that is directly in parallel and analogous to what's happening in the United States. 10 or so CIA officers are being investigated right now by a special prosecutor. A special prosecutor hasn't been told to investigate those who actually approved the policy. They're not investigating Mr. Rumsfeld, Mr. Cheney, President Bush. They're not being investigated. It's CIA officers who are being investigated. And, and I, I think this is me personally speaking. <laughs> We're in danger here in both countries of really looking at the wrong people in terms of who approved all of these things. I don't believe that the uh, intelligence officers in either countries were, on the basis of what's in the public domain, off on a frolic. So there are direct parallels between what's happening in the US and what's happening in the UK. You raised also the issue of the courts. And there there's been a, it's just a world of difference between the US courts and the English courts. A world of difference. And that is best illustrated by reference to the judgment that came down yesterday Court of Appeals, I think it's the Second Circuit, in the case of uh, Maha ara the Canadian Syrian national who was stopped at JFK airport on information provided by the um, uh, Canadians to the Americans and eventually sent to Syria where he was tortured. Now it turns out that this guy was wholly innocent of anything. It's clearly established. And what then happened was that in Canada, they had a uh, lengthy inquiry, judicial inquiry, which exonerated him, apologized to him, and ordered that he be paid $11.5 million in compensation. So that is what a functioning democracy does, in my view. It accepts total responsibility for wrongdoing and legal error. What's happened in the United States? In the United States, yesterday, Ara, by seven votes to four in the Second Circuit, was the recipient of a judgment which said he has no right of access to the U.S. courts to challenge the circumstances of his treatment and the responsibility of the United States because to do so would open a can of worms in relation to national security issues and foreign relations with Canada. That judgment is a total disgrace and it is a stain as Guido Calabresi, who sat and was one of the four judges in the minority, says in his dissenting opinion. Guido Calabresi being a former dean of Yale Law School, this is a black day for American justice. Compare that with the recent judgment uh, of the English High Court Justice or Justice Thomas and. Justice Lloyd Jones in the Binya Mohammed case, ordering publication of seven lines of redacted material from information received from the United States by the British authorities and rejecting the argument firstly that this would affect Britain's national security and second that this would uh, affect relations, between the United Kingdom and the United States. Now, important point to note, both cases are subject to appeal. So it may well be that if we talk in a year and a half's time, there's been a reversal, Supreme Court gets it right, Court of Appeal, Supreme Court here gets it wrong. We don't know. Let's not prejudge the outcomes. But right now, as things stand, it looks pretty good before the English courts, and it looks pretty dire (laughs) in the United States.
2: Okay, so I want to step back from the legal uh, argument a little bit, <clears throat> and because I think legal redress—not um, that I don't think the courts are important, okay—but <laughs> like, I think that there's a larger issue here that has to do with human beings and and one of the um, and how we treat them, and one of the um, reasons I wrote my book was that it's the story of a. What happened in those first 100 days is that the military people that were tasked with building Guantanamo realized that they were on a fool's mission, that these weren't people necessarily who were the worst of the worst, and that the policies they were being given were illegal, if not immoral, and who fought back and were pulled out. So, um, So Guantanamo is somewhat important, and it's important symbolically in terms of how you think about what happens when you've made a mistake. Now, in Canada, they made this one mistake, they paid for it with $11 million or something like that, and they were done with their mistake. What does a country, and now I'm talking about the United States, not Britain, do when it knows, and it has known since 2001, because that's when the first hundred. 2002, those first 100 days, just the January, when it knows it's made a mistake. So we know one thing it does. It tries to deny to itself that it has made a mistake. It tells itself that we need to do this. We're going to do this more. We're going to codify this more. We're going to perpetuate this mistake to prove to ourselves that we were right initially, even though we have all these people that we can't find evidence on and that we don't even know their names and we're not sure about half of them. What it does and it continues to do this for the next 4 years is to is to build a story that doesn't hold water so much so that they eventually move the 14 most obvious alleged terrorists, including Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, to Guantanamo, where they, you know, in an instant, changed the nature of Guantanamo from a place where we're not really sure who's there or what they're guilty of to a place where we have 14 high-value 14 high detainees who have, you know, masterminded 9-11, uh, the USS Cole, the Bajinka plot, the potential Bajinka plot, et cetera, et cetera. So these are w- well-known names in the law enforcement community of, of ter- terrorists, alleged terrorists, and known terrorists who have committed acts or planned to act against the United States and other countries. So what do you do to, to, if you accept the uh, error and the mistake, what do you do? Do you pay compensation? Do you apologize as a country? And this, I think, is the thing that Obama... Outside of the legal issues of, of redress, outside of a truth and reconciliation uh, commission that's about accountability, as 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 address human beings addressing other human beings, what is in your bag of, of potential um, of potential healing tools? What do you do? And I'm just curious about your thoughts.
1: Well, I think the that you have to find some way to accept responsibility for, for error. I, I don't think it necessarily means paying large amounts of compensation. I think if you talk to some of the detainees who were held completely in error the Uyghurs for example completely in error no allegations, nothing against them, I mean just swept up and who spent seven years of their lives um, and there are hundreds of others, That they won't tell you they want compensation or they want court decisions. They will tell you what they want is an apology, just a simple apology. No person who has left Guantanamo has received an apology. Not a single person who has been held has at a formal level been told, we regret very much what happened to you. We hereby express Our apology. Instead, what they're given is bits of paper to sign that they won't bring proceedings, that they won't complain, that they won't make allegations, that they won't do this, and they won't do that. And I think what it boils down to, actually, is not about litigation and criminal accountability. And what we learn in other contexts, in Sierra Leone, in Chile, in Argentina, it's what I think people crave for the most is a sense of. Historical factual accounting which then allows people to move on which is why ultimately if I'm asked to call or to choose between you know, a few criminal cases against a few people on the one hand or a proper truth and reconciliation on the other hand and the two are not mutually exclusive in the sense that one can trigger the other and vice versa I would go for the factual accounting because I think more people in the round will derive Solace from that than the bringing of a criminal process against one or two people however high up now the complexities in any society are how to use your resources when resources are limited and it's maybe that you need a bit of both but in a sense the best example for that is South Africa where the experience was clear that in order to help that society move on it was decided at a pretty early stage that what was needed was Truth coupled with an opportunity for individuals to express regret or remorse. And that's why I think the policy of Dick Cheney, who not only doesn't even come close to doing that, opposites, uh, applies completely the opposite tag, is just so deeply damaging to the well-being mm-hmm. of the United States. Because as you pick up traveling around the world, as I pick up traveling around the world, you know this has left a very, very... Stain. So I think it's about the acceptance of responsibility. It's not about court cases. It's not about uh, compensation. It's about the facts and the truth. And we still don't know the whole story of who decided what when. We know the lawyers played a central role, but for the lawyers, this would not have happened. We should throw it out now to the audience because they have been sitting there very patiently and they may well have uh, may questions that, that they want to take over there. First, this gentleman here and then the lady at the back. There are, I think, microphones that will. uh... No, there's there's a microphone coming down. Maybe introduce yourself also so that Karen and I know who you are. Um, My name's. this one. My name's Teddy Nixon. I'm an undergraduate in international relations at the LSE. Thank you both for fascinating. uh, presentations to give us your thoughts on this. Um, in Insofar as uh, people are looking for justice in relation to acts of torture that have taken place, you're both discussing justice on a domestic level. Um, there has been some discussion of it on an international level, and I simply wanted to ask, I mean, to put it as crudely as possible, is that, I mean, could this end up in The Hague? I want to add to that question. I want to ask Karen the question I meant to ask. How would the Obama administration react if Doug Fife or Jim Haynes or Dick Cheney or Donald Rumsfeld on a vacation or professional trip to Spain or France were subject to pinochet? What would the Obama administration do? And then there's the related question.
2: Okay, answer your question while I'm thinking. <laughs> um,
1: it, 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 some, of, some, some of it might. I mean, the ICC prosecutor has very limited jurisdiction. The United States is not a party. But amazingly, Afghanistan is a party to the statute of the International Criminal Court, which means the ICC prosecutor can exercise jurisdiction over anything that happened in Afghanistan during the material period after the 2nd of July 2002, which crosses the line of war crime, crime against humanity. And that is something that I think ought to be investigated, because there has been no accountability for what happened in Bagram and other parts of Afghanistan. And that, I think, is now subject to some consideration.
2: Okay. <laughs> the $60 million question <laughs> or whatever, um, what do I think the Obama administration would do? I think they would protest vocally and in every way they could and and believe they were going to get these people back, and they would. I think that they would say at this point in time, we're not done with our own investigation. And so we get, you know, under universal jurisdiction, we're supposed to be given that um, that right to, to conduct this ourselves. Do I think it would be a shot in the arm for them to, you know, ramp up what they're doing? It might be. But I don't think there's any question that they would consider it um, an affront to um, national sovereignty, to but they, the sovereignty. But they
1: didn't react vocally and publicly immediately or subsequently very loudly to what happened in Spain.
2: No, because that's because, but it's different to say something and 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 to to actually, um, you know, capture somebody else's citizen and and say that you're going to hold them accountable. Correct? I mean, isn't that there's yeah, a I mean,
1: Just so that because people are not aware, un- uh, in Spain right now, there are two criminal investigations taking place of the so-called Bush Six, uh, the lawyers who drafted. The and
2: I and I doubt the Obama administration is particularly happy about that. I think that there is a feeling that this is the United, it's the United States' business to take care of it, and then it should. On the other hand, historically, what countries, you know, examine themselves and and punish themselves, you know, I don't know. But actually, that's not something that we have a lot of historical precedent for. And um, so that's where I'd leave it. Um, yes,
3: I have two questions, but one is actually exactly Sorry, what you said. we can't hear it. It's not. <laughs> I have two questions, but one was actually exactly as Philippe Sand said. It's about background. Um, I mean, we don't know everything about Guantanamo, but we know an awful lot more than we do about Bagram. But is Bagram itself Afghanistan, or is it the U.S.? I mean, how is that going to run? Is it U.S. territory, it's a U.S. military base, etc., etc. But the other question was, um, you talked, I thought, about two or possibly three police investigations in the U.K., and I only picked up on one in what you said. Is there another case, another detainee, another investigation entirely separately from Binyan Mohammed? What are the two cases?
1: I mean there are are two cases one is the Binyam Mohammed case the other is a case that was self-referred by the intelligence services the full facts of which are not or even the partial facts of which are not public we don't know what the story is but there is a second investigation that is underway and there is of course also the inquiry that's now taking place in relation to Bahamusa which some of my colleagues at Matrix Chambers are, are very actively involved in Rabindu Singh who has a relationship course, with LSC is, is, is leading on
2: that. About um, Bagram, um, I, we don't know a lot about who, at who's. In some ways, um, it represents Guantanamo. In other ways, we do, we don't know that it does. You know, we have an assumption, Philippe. Can you know correct me if I'm wrong? That the the um, enhanced interrogation techniques are not being used at Bagram. However. Um, The conditions at Bagram in terms of how the prisoners are being kept um, um, have not been reported uh, in in a positive way by Amnesty International. You should read their report on Bagram because it's excellent, Um, both in terms of what we know and what we don't know. but it, it's in terms of being a place where we put people who we don't necessarily know who is there or why they're being kept there, it does resemble Guantanamo and a place that, that there's a lot of opposition to getting uh, information from. That That is the pattern that we saw at Guantanamo uh, throughout. Um, in terms of spilling over into this larger area of uh, interrogation and torture, I don't think anybody has a sense but I don't have a sense of but on your
1: on. on your very legalistic question it's not US territory it is located on the territory of Afghanistan there is no opt out possible to say that you can somehow carve out a part of your uh, territory uh, and therefore it falls plainly in my view within the jurisdiction of, of the International Criminal Court a gentleman here a lady at the back at the end and then a lady there.
4: That's okay. Um, Thank you. Um, I think we've heard a great deal about the UK and we've heard a great deal about the Bush administration but uh, reflecting on your title where does President Obama go from here I'd be curious to hear both of your opinions on what we what we can expect to see President Obama do, what we think he's capable of doing, and um, he's got not a whole lot more uh, time before he has to start campaigning again, where do we think he, President Obama goes from here?
2: Okay. I have a really short answer, which is that one of the problems th- that if the campaign is what matters most, then I think it answers the rest of your questions. But maybe it won't be the campaign that will matter most. Where Obama goes from here is where he said he would go on January 22nd, where he took office. Um, And so let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Where he goes from here is he closes Guantanamo. He ends torture as a, a, a policy in any way. That belongs to the U.S. government, and he makes a clear detention policy that is um, in line with the Geneva Conventions and other laws that might affect it, both in terms of the U.S. military and the U.S. courts. That's where he goes. That's where he should go. And that is, um, and although there are probably a lot of, you know, he might do this, he might do that. I'm sticking with the with the the original uh, orders from January 22nd. But maybe Philippe has a uh, uh,
1: look, a more I mean, adult answer. You know, Karen is more <laughs> closely connected than I am. But I mean, I'm. In, I'm you know, in Washington once a month. I, I think Obama is very wise. I think Obama is playing the long game. I think there was no reason whatsoever and no political advantage whatsoever to be gained uh, from initiating, from day one, criminal investigations of the former administration. You only need to imagine any government coming into office and unleashing a criminal investigation of its immediate predecessors to understand that that is a complete non-starter no democratically elected government can do that on day 1 or day 100 or even day 300 or even day 500 what a smart person does is open the door to things taking on a life of their own in which that person can then say look, I didn't investigate particular things. I released a few documents. My Attorney General then appointed a special prosecutor to look at a very narrow category of cases that did not include the previous administration. But since, as we expect will happen, all those 10 CIA people will say, look, we were acting pursuant to orders. The special prosecutor will then have to look At those orders and follow where those orders lead and I think a lot of people would not be surprised in the least if where that leads to as one possible outcome is an opening of the door to those who drafted the policy so I remain pretty optimistic that he is playing a smart and long game which will eventually allow him to say we opened doors. We didn't investigate anyone ourselves. Things took on a life of their own. And I think that's the smart thing to do in a democratic society. I think, you know, it's the same. You know, imagine the Tories coming in next May and they have adopted, in many respects, a principled policy on the issue of abuse and torture. You know, can we imagine any new government coming in, or the Lib Dems even, who've gone even further than the Tories, and saying... We should investigate the previous government. We should investigate the previous prime minister. That is a really difficult thing to do. When you come into office and you're trying to build bridges and build a consensus and take forward competing and difficult policies on other issues. So I I think this is a long game, and I think we should not have too great expectations too early. These things will play themselves out. Now There was... Um, There was a gentleman here.
3: Sophia Hamas, um, thinking about long ways forwards. Given that there's a decreasing interest in um, the moral arguments against torture and also an aversion to addressing the legality of torture, you also spoke about how it goes against national identity, so to speak. I'm not quite sure about that, but that's (laughs) that's another point. Um, Do you find yourself sometimes trying to give more practical explanations or... arguments against torture Um, I certainly sometimes uncomfortably find myself in that position my grandfather was tortured in the last and final independence war of Algeria Um, the effects are still with us today I still have a phobia against electricity so um, sometimes you start feeling yourself pushed into saying why torture is perhaps not practical in terms of governance in terms of intelligence gathering um, those kind of arguments. I'd like to get your feelings on that,
2: both of you. I'm thrilled that you asked that question because, you know, I run a center on national security. And It's not a human rights center, okay? So it's on national security in which we assume human rights. So for a long time, I have, let's say, from 2004 until, until I did this piece actually for the FT about two summers ago, I've always started with the national security argument that if you think you can rely on torture, you're going to lose the game. Just, you know, basically that should not be in your tools for national security reasons. But the more, and, and I, and I, you know, I, I get, I do a lot of radio and get a lot of people that call in and say things that they wouldn't say in a present like this and about why they support torture And I've never been able to convince. No matter what I say, I've I've never gotten one inch in the conversation. I can't figure out what to say. And finally, um, largely because I had debates with um, a couple friends of mine, I finally just came down to it's a moral issue. But I still some you know say all of the things. But but I want to say that ultimately, when it comes right down to it, it is a moral issue. And if you can't have the dialogue about that. Then ultimately, what are you having a dialogue about? Which is why I bring up the um, legal issue. um, I just want to say this one thing: it's kind of interesting. I went back to uh, the correspondence between Hannah Arendt and Karl Jaspers that was written on the eve of the Eichmann trial, and he has a lot of. He's a, you know, was her mentor and a prominent German uh, philosopher during the Nazi period, and you know, she wrote Eichmann in Jerusalem. Uh, over the trial, and um, he does not think this trial should take place, and he writes to her very eloquently about it. And the reason is just this: that if it gets played out in the legal venue, that the moral argument is going to be lost, and that and he doesn't want it lost. And he, ref- you know, he, that that the impetus that gets you there, that the kind of um, human drive that gets you to torture, and that the human fallout of it are not going to be um, are not going to be addressed. And so I think more and more, you know, I, I'm not so sure the moral arg- the moral ground has been lost, but I think a lot of us, and I include myself, have been kind of trying to to, to speak to all constituencies and to hedge our bets. And I, I don't want to say it hasn't gotten us anywhere. So thank you for that question. No,
1: I think it's a, it's a huge important question. I, I don't think... The moral arguments have diminished, actually, or, or gone away. I mean, the, di- the difficulty that people like Karen and I face is that when we begin to engage with people who hold the other view, so supporters of Dick Cheney, and they will say to you, "But it works. It produced all this information. Blah blah blah." You are drawn into an argument on their own terms, and you start saying, "Actually, it doesn't work." And what I'm hearing, and then 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 you've lost you've really lost the real argument. Once you open that door, I think we are lost and we and I constantly find myself having to bring myself back, if I engage in that kind of debate, with actually I'm against it because it's not who we are. It's just as simple as that. The utilitarian arguments don't matter, the legal arguments don't matter. It boils down to a simple issue about who we are. And that for me, and I think you're picking up the Karen and I have both been exposed to these lengthy debates with people who hold alternative views or people who were involved. And I can tell you, I don't, you know, you've you've spent time with someone who was a victim of torture, but spent time with someone who is a perpetrator. It's It's a really grueling experience to go through when those individuals seek to justify what they did. And the one sort of point which gives them pause for thought, and I had this most directly in an interview that I did for my book with General Myers, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, going through item by item each of the 15 techniques and, and as we got to the end of it i i just said to him general can i just ask you would you be comfortable with any of these techniques being used on any of your women in any circumstances whatsoever and he just without batting an eyelid you know just said no absolutely not absolutely out of the question, and of course the follow-up question for which there is no answer is, well if it's not for us, how on earth can you possibly justify it in relation to the others, which of course teases out the issue that you're not treating them as equivalent humans, there is a discriminatory aspect to the whole thing which I think takes you directly to your question. But it's very dangerous to start debating: Does it work? Does it produce intelligence? Is it useful? Once that, I think we're in the same place on that issue. There was, a, there was, a, there was someone who I pointed to over here, the lady. Over there. Um, hi.
5: Uh, my question is actually about the investigations that have been initiated so far, and you talked about the Spanish investigation of the lawyers, and I guess. I find that issue particularly compelling about where the sort of buck stops because I would presume that when you take higher, they would then turn to the lawyers again and say, but we had legal advice saying that this was not a violation of the torture convention or etc. cetera, et cetera. So I guess I was hoping that either one or both of you might expand on your own thoughts on whether the buck should should stop at the lawyers I mean um, uh, professor Greenberg you obviously implied that it shouldn't and I think that's right for political reasons but but there is I, I, as a lawyer myself I, I guess I'm very troubled both pro and con on that issue I understand the importance of legal advice on the other hand you know to what extent you should you derive criminal responsibility based on legal advice or I mean beyond the moral responsibility question.
2: Um, I think this. what this is going to come down to, first of all, I, I would be content with it focusing on the lawyers. <laughs> if I, you know, <laughs> maybe in an ideal world you'd get beyond that. Um, uh, it's all going to come down to an issue of what they thought they were doing. Did they think that they were covering up for things that they knew were already happening, and therefore was, was this in good faith or not? Is this really what they thought, or is this what they had to think given a political... Uh, Forget about political. Given the reality of what was going on and what they knew was going to be going on, and I think it's going to turn on that. And and um, and you know, in an ideal world, would would there be some kind of uh, rebuke and reprimand, whether professional or more, for the lawyers who did this? I, I would <laughs> I would think that would be appropriate. Whether or not it's going to happen is another story.
1: Well, I mean, pl- plainly, it needs to go beyond the lawyers. But 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 the lawyers have a Central responsibility. And I mean, one aspect of this that is, in a sense, let's just say, satisfying, is that some of these lawyers have been unable to get jobs. I mean, so, so it's a remarkable situation that the former Attorney General of the United States of America cannot get hired by a law firm. A current professor at Berkeley Law School could not get a job at another Ivy League law school the former counsel to the Vice President of the United States has not been able to get himself a serious job. So, you know, it's not that these issues have been entirely without consequence. Plus, not one of them can set foot outside of the United States. You know, it's not the end of the world, I suppose, to be imprisoned in the United States. But to know that you can't actually go and visit Richard Pearl in his house in south of France... Yeah, you know, you've got to live with that every day and that has that has consequences. I think we've got time for one more one one more question. Right. Let's take two. Let's say the the, gen, the gentleman at the front and then the lady over, over there at the left. I should perhaps say that
4: I remember the advisory of the board of the Senate for human rights, Frank Jared House of I was greatly encouraged um, by feeling what you were saying. About your optimism. I wish I was totally convinced. I think there is a pretty strong consensus amongst the enlightened establishment, if I can use that old fashioned word, which goes across the party department. That out there there is still the Sun, the Express, the Daily Mail, and the rest. If there were another event, I'm not at all convinced we have built up that solid groundwork in society as a whole. And this brings me to another point which you made in answer to these very researches, mm. my character. Um, you said, oh, actually it was from the audience, when you said you're lost when you get into the argument, does it work, or doesn't. Because I think there's an argument when you can argue that in the short term. But in the strategic sense, you're on the losing side because you're playing right into the hands of the extremists. You may know what's happening. They're maximizing attention on what's happening. And you are aiming and abetting those you are trying to contain. I've spoken with senior police and very senior military, very, very senior military people who completely hold that and say that what all this, these things have done are stupid because they're actually working against our troops and everybody else who are out there trying to achieve a table operation. And I think we need to get much more aggressive about this. The you people who use these sort of techniques and try to justify them are actually working for the other side. The only way we have, the only chance we have of winning for a decent, stable society is to be, and here I agree, of course, to know who we are and want to be that, of course, but also to demonstrate that you people are undermining everything we are trying to say. We've got to get more aggressive about that. If I just make one technical observation, I think sure about, um, the issue about use of, of information in culture uh, has been in the layman's eye a bit because while there has been this position on and it is action, on those who may have uh, been involved in actually collaborating torture, feeding them questions, there's also been a argument about whether you should use information which you may know has been gained as torture, but not torture which you were anyway involved. And of there the norms have come down the all sides. Incidentally, I think of a strong of the line, the maximizing of the Christian has been the yeah. Which, those I new generation, younger judges, were as rooted in all the talking about
1: falling off the I mean, I. Speak for myself, I suspect Karen agrees with you. I mean, we're with you 1,000% on the merits of those arguments and Britain's own experience in relation to the IRA was very telling. I gave a talk when my book came out a, a couple of years ago in Belfast and at the end of the talk there was a Q&A and a lady at the back put her hand up and just said, look, I've listened to this with great interest. You know, I was IRA in 1970, 1971 I was interned. I wasn't subject to the five techniques which is what the British use, but I can tell you it was the best thing that happened to the IRA, best thing that ever happened to us, because we used it to go and recruit people who were on the fence. Once we told them what they were doing to us, and it was only about 14 people, and it was five techniques used for a matter of weeks, and yet it had a catalytic galvanizing effect. But you've touched on one issue that neither of us have looked at, and this I think, you know, I am an optimistic person, but let me argue against myself. The establishment has not actually uniformly condemned it. When I uh, argued the the case with Ben Emerson of A&Others, the second one, which concerned a case as to whether or not there were circumstances in which evidence obtained by torture could be used in legal proceedings in the English court, in which a Labour government, to my great horror, was arguing that it should be. A Labour attorney general was arguing that it should be. was a deeply dark day, I think, in Britain. Now, the law lords, in fact, said uniformly, "You no, you cannot do that. There was an issue about the burden on what it goes, and there is a distinction as to the use of... Such information uh, not in court proceedings but other proceedings. And the law lords rightly said, in my view, that look, the convention doesn't exclude that. But right now, we are having a debate in this country about engaging with the intelligence services of third countries. And our extremely decent and fine Foreign Secretary, David Miliband, has said publicly look, we have got to deal with the intelligence services of Pakistan and others even if they are using torture because otherwise we will not be able to protect ourselves and I'm afraid I cannot accept that once you go down that route you are effectively transferring the torture to others and living and protecting yourself off the back of it and there comes a point in that equation when you are complicit so that door remains very very open There appears to be high-level cross-party support for that approach, and that, I think, is unacceptable, which is why the current debate in Britain on complicity is so very vital, because it goes to the heart of this question uh, of the export of techniques that we ourselves don't want to do. But Frankly, if the Syrians, the Moroccans, the Pakistanis are willing to do it, we're not going to say we're not going to use the fruits of that stuff. We've got to be big enough to say, "You go down that route, we're not we're not engaging with you." And I think if we're not willing to do that, then we have to accept our responsibilities for opening the door to those types of policies. So I think it's not just the Sun and the Express. There's a bigger issue uh, that is very alive right now.
4: Forgive me, but that does be- mean
1: we have we, we, ha- we're. Yeah. we we're, we're being told we have to close but there was one okay. final brief very brief question the lady at the back hopefully to Karen or- The Nobel Peace Prize. Is, yeah, is, is, here's where I'm
2: going to come in um, on Philippe's optimism. Um, you know, when you're given the Nobel Peace Prize and you haven't yet done anything <laughs> to, um, it put maybe it puts a, a larger burden on you to rise up to expectations. And, you know, President Obama is a pretty thoughtful and I think dedicated um, president. And my guess is he's going to, take that seriously and I think it's much larger than the issue of torture yep.
1: I, I thought he was for what it's worth uncharacteristically uncool and he should have turned it down <laughs> that would have been the proper thing to do and I think accepting it was a big big mistake he, he
2: is human <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, well on, on
0: that note whether or not uh, President Obama should or should not have received the peace prize um, I would have accepted it <laughs> uh, I, I, I was very uh, moved when you made the point uh, about Northern Ireland I had the uh, rare privilege I suppose of being living in Northern Ireland and Creeks Belfast for 20 years 22 years man and boy and I arrived in 1972 when the war as people like to call it was full full throat. and I ended when the peace broke out and somebody said I couldn't hack the peace um but, but the point you make on the question of measures taken by the British state, internment without trial, Bloody Sunday, a number of other things, in my opinion, this was the major factor in the, in the rapid recruitment and rise of the provisional IRA in the 1970s. So whatever you kind of talk about the merits or demerits of torture, and I agree with you, that's a very slippery and dangerous slope to go down even in purely state security terms. Well it's not That's work it. probably yes. it uses the wrong intelligence. It in the end does does end up as the recruiting sergeant for those whom you're ostensibly opposed to. I would also have to say secondly on a lighter note it's been the easiest job of sharing I've ever had <laughs> life. I wish I could do this every week. Um, uh, I'd also like to say that the LSE as you well know you deals with difficult issues. Uh, we don't we don't shy away uh, from those issues, we don't duck, uh, and I don't think we've ducked this evening. I'd like to thank you all in the audience for an excellent yeah. set of questions. More importantly, I'd like to thank Karen and Philippe for excellent presentations. And finally, on the LSE entrepreneurial note, they will be signing their book up here after you've all gone and purchased it out there. But you will, nonetheless, get a book with the signature and Anyway, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you.